The scripture reading this morning is taken from 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men and the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It is great uh, to be back with you. Um, and <clears throat> this wasn't necessarily planned earlier this week, but uh, before we before we start, we need to before we dive into our text this morning, we need to acknowledge just the atrocious evil from yesterday's events, and we need to acknowledge it as a church. And all the events that were leading up to it in Charlottesville this last week, these appalling actions of racism and violence and bigotry and hatred, they reveal the depths of our human depravity. Um, 
And I've been in some texts back and forth with some of our brothers and sisters at CFBC, our, our church partner, and how, how do we as a church talk about this? How do we as a church wrestle through this? Because listen, the majority of folks in this place, the majority of folks who make up the downtown campus are from the majority culture. And in one sense, it can be very easy to be quiet and assume that other conversations are going on. And we, this, this morning service could just flow and then we could go and then, you know, I could have coffees with you afterwards. But we as a church together, we need to talk about this. Um, because our hearts break. If you've seen any of the video footage uh, and heard the reports, it makes your stomach turn. And depending on your personality, your anger starts to percolate. And for others, it's been boiling over for a while. And we want to stand with our people. You know, this isn't those people. It's not something that happened way over there that we need to be thinking about them. This happened to us as a nation. And these are our people. And so we need to respond caring for our people. And, and even as I thought about how do we respond, and listen, I know it seems like when these events spark up, we can have these moments and it feels like there's no inaction. I want to charge, actually, for us to have continued action. Or For many of you, I know you're doing a lot behind the scenes, and I just want to encourage you to keep doing it. Keep doing the good work you're doing. It's often gone unnoticed by many, but what we can do this morning at this moment is not just turn to one another, but to turn to the one who holds the world in his hands. Even when it feels like it's chaotic, even when our hearts break amidst broken ideologies that lead to very disastrous activity, the one thing we can do together as a starting point, not as an end point, but a starting point, is to pray together. And <clears throat> I actually was, was doing some, some reading and thinking and came across a prayer from one of the pastors that's there in Charlottesville. And I hope their words really do become our words. Um, that this prayer really does become our prayer and that we can stand in solidarity with them in the midst of this brokenness. Um, so let's pray together. Sweet Jesus, what has happened to your beloved world? What darkness is on the loose when those who hate their neighbors pray in your name and ask for your blessing? You have told us, O oh Lord, what is good, to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with you, and yet there are those among us who wield machine guns to intimidate and chant vitriolic rhetoric to terrorize and ram cars intentionally into crowds to kill. Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. We have no hope save in you. We have no hope to stop the violence and stem the racism and cease the destruction save in you. Save us now, Prince of Peace. Tell us to pray for those who persecute us and love our enemies. But right now, in this moment, those prayers are not readily on our lips. Help us. Intercede for us. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be acceptable to you, even if in this moment they are colored with anger and weariness and questions about your presence during the storm. What next, Alpha and Omega?
beginning and end. When we are right in the middle of the chaos and the killing and the carnage, we know that justice will roll down like water and that crying and death will be no more someday, but we need to know what to do this very day. This very day you have made, creator God, living God, God of the new thing, the very good thing. Show us where to be and what to do and how to be the light and the salt and the leaven and the love you call us to be. Precious Lord, take our hands. Lead us home to the place you prepared for us and give us rest. Put us beside still waters and overflow our cups with grace upon grace until it spills into the streets and washes away the evil in our land. Wash us and we will be clean, made new, clothed and in right minds together. All-powerful and promise-keeping God, make it so. Sweet Jesus, in your name, make it so. Amen. Amen. Well, there's not really an easy way to jump into this, so I'll just... Move now to our text here as we think about as a community. And I, I want to let you know, it's great being back from sabbatical. Um, and I want to share with you just two insights, two important things I learned uh, over sabbatical before we jump into Second Kings here. And, and hear me, you know, the reality is as much as you think you know the world, as much as you think you've got your feet firmly planted and that you understand how to navigate issues around you, if you by chance have the opportunity to book a hotel with hot wire, <laughs> you might get bunk beds. Um, I don't know if you knew this or not, um, but this was something that my family learned. Those, those items of furniture that are placed in certain rooms to help you cram as many people as you can as possible, or um, those same furniture that, that you have in military barracks to help you know, soldiers endure and grow in endurance. We as a family stayed in those for four nights. Um, <laughs> Our kids loved it, and, and Allie and I loved that our kids loved it. It was, it was, you know, really interesting. Buyer beware. I had some good joke there, but it just didn't stack up, you know. Um, I'm back. Isn't it good? Oh, okay. Well, so here, that's the first lesson. Listen, that's kind of important. It was kind of a shock to us. We didn't even know that was possible, so just buyer beware. That's, that's out there, but seriously, the second and really the most important lesson, the lesson that's Maybe one of the most important lessons I learned on sabbatical, one of the most important lessons that any pastor or any church learns during periods of sabbatical, and, and I want to warn you, it doesn't sound radical, but the weight of it when you actually experience it, existentially, it's very sobering. And here it is. One of the most important things I learned on sabbatical is that there's a day coming when my part at Christ's community will come to an end. I have an end. Like there's a point coming when I will breathe my last this side of heaven. And honestly, it's not that I didn't know that, um, but in the midst of meetings and, and writing sermons and, and planning razors and then mowing the lawn and making breakfast for my kids, you know, the tyranny of the urgent, as much as I try to push it off, reigns the day. And in sabbatical, it's kind of this weird no man's land. It's kind of, if you remember from high school, between June and August, <laughs> where you just have this time to think and, and, and pray and, and then do a summer job or something like that. You know, I guess that was high school uh, for me anyway. But, 
But in that time, I was left with these thoughts of, well, what's it going to be like? When there were no more sermons to write, no more meetings to be had, it hit me afresh. I have an end. And don't worry, I'm not going to try to sell you life insurance at this point. I mean, I think this is a great on-ramp if somebody wants to use it later. But, um, <clears throat> but that's not my goal this morning. It's a good thing, but that's not what I'm trying to do. But there's a day coming when your part, when my part, that we have to play on this planet will come to an end. And sure, we can act invincible. We do, don't we? If we get sick, we go looking for the medicine. If we have a malady in like our bodies, we're waiting for the next movement of technology to kind of extend our life. And, and we may know that death is coming. I think all of us know death is coming, but we kind of isolate ourselves from death and we isolate death itself so much from us that it feels foreign, almost like a fairy tale. Like we know it's out there. And in, unless like a loved one has passed away recently that was really close to you, then death becomes real. And we talk about that. It became real, but often it feels so far away. But when those moments that, that, that your end is before you, and it feels real. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe in God or not, what's kind of like a common practice? We look back, don't we? We start to reflect on the past. We think over our lives. Has the lives we've been living, hopefully you're living one life, I guess the life we've, you know, you've been living, was it worth the energy you've been putting into it? And you start cherishing memories. Oh, do you remember that? And pushing back regrets. And, and listen, I don't want to discount any of that. I think that's a really good practice and process. It's really healthy, really normal. But there's more. As soon as you start to really love people and let people in and let them love you, you start to, you start to ask a different question too. You start to wonder, what will become of those I love? What will become of those I love when I'm gone? Like when you're gone, what will happen to the friends you've, you've helped carry through difficult times? Who's going to carry them when you're gone? Those loved ones that you've shouldered, who's gonna, whose shoulder are they going to cry on? Who's going to be there to comfort them? When you think about the issues of injustice you've been fighting to push back, what about when you're gone? What about when the children are raised? When you retire from that job? When the neighbors you've walked with and shared the gospel with and have not yet embraced Christ, but then you're gone. What about all that? Does it just get left undone? Does it just stop? And maybe it doesn't stop completely or forever, but is there then this gap, this void forever felt where you used to do what only you could do? Maybe you're not asking that question right now, but I can guarantee you'll ask that question at some point in your life. And it'll happen again and again and again. And it's a question that once it starts being raised, it doesn't disappear. Well, I want you to hear this morning that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've rested in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we have this unsinkable comfort, this bedrock truth that's anchored in our text this morning about how God works in the world that answers this question. You see, long after you're gone, long after I'm gone, and I don't want you to miss this, God won't stop being there. God won't stop being there. Long after, long after you've punched the clock for the last time, long after your health has declined to such a degree that you can't visit the ones that you love and cherish, long after friendships fizzle, 
The end may not even be death itself, but the death of a relationship. Long after the kids have left the house, God won't stop being there. Well, this summer we've been kind of walking through a series based on the story of a guy named Elijah. He was kind of a big deal. Um, And we've been asking this question, what does it look like for God to be with us? I mean, where is God in injustice was one of the questions we've asked. And, and I know this past week it's raised some of those questions again, and I'd encourage you to go back to the podcast and re-listen to that sermon as we've wrestled with that question. Or where is God in despair? That's another weighty question. Or where is God when an evil ruler comes to power? And, and those are good questions. But what happens when your part is finished? What happens when you're long gone? What will become of those that we love? Will God not just be with us, but with those after us? And we're definitely not the first people to ask this question. Really, every generation asks this question, and it anchors in the desire to see good works continue, good work and the mission of God in redeeming and restoring all things to continue past our time of influence. And this morning, we'll see that God's response to this question as to will he be with those after us is a resounding yes, because God won't stop being there. And when we we go through our story this morning, we're going to see two things. We're going to see why this is true, okay? This isn't just a feel-good statement that we can slap on a bumper sticker, but we're going to see why this is true, and then how this actually changes everything you do today. And this time tomorrow, whether at home, at work, in school, in a friendship, over coffee. Because this isn't just some neat idea that God won't stop being there. This is a life-altering truth. It should shape the way not only we see the world, but then reorient us on how we walk in it. So to see those two things together, let's take a look at 2 Kings chapter 2, the passage that was just read for us. And right away... Uh, I don't know if you felt this way, but as I was reading through it, like that first verse feels like something straight out of Lord of the Rings. Um, And I'll say this, just kind of like to put a pin on this on the side. This is a good reminder when you come to your Bible that this is written by various authors. God is working through various authors and it's God speaking truth into every time, every place, every culture. But it was written at a particular time in a particular culture to a particular place. It still speaks to us today, but we have to be thoughtful as we navigate the text. So when you read 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1, a verse that raises all kinds of questions for us, instead it reads almost like a throwaway phrase. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha went for a walk. Hmm, okay. Like, like Hollywood is salivating at that first part of the verse. They're like, ooh, I can see, you know, pyrotechnics to the... To the the nth degree, but to the author here, the historian, it's almost like, okay, we're going to get moving through this, okay? I just want you to know that's about to happen. And listen, there are no throwaway passages in the Bible, none. But the point here, what the author is trying to say is that although Elijah is taken up into a whirlwind and that is cool and that's important to this story, it's not what's most important to this story. And it only gets weirder, okay? Because <laughs> on this long walk, Elijah and Elisha they play this kind of cat and mouse game from town to town. 
And each town they stop in, four things happen. Here they are. First, Elijah. So Elijah, right, the prophetic voice of God to the king and the people. And Elisha, his understudy. Elijah, this powerful personality in Elisha, trying to watch and learn what's going on. Elijah tells his understudy, Elisha, not to worry about him anymore. And to just stay here in this town. And two, Elisha says, no way, I'm going with you. Something's about to go down. <laughs> Three, then these student prophets that Elijah's been investing in and training tell Elisha, hey, do you know that your mentor's about to be taken away? Hmm. Number four, then Elisha says to these students, yeah, I know, get lost and shut up, okay? Like, I'm dealing with this in my own way. Well, then they finally get to the Jordan River, and you have 50 of these, like, understudy prophets hanging off in the distance, watching about what's, what's about to go down. And Elisha, Elijah, he takes off his coat, he rolls it up almost like in gym class, and slaps the water. <laughs> At least that's how I see it. He takes his coat off and he slaps the water. I don't know how he does it, but he slaps the water. <laughs> and the water parts, both to the right and the left, such that the ground in the riverbed is dry to the touch. And Elijah and Elisha cross over. Now this walk just got interesting, right? And I can't help but think, when Elijah breaks the silence finally, it's kind of like a father and son who've been skirting around issues for years and they finally come to that heart-to-heart. -heart. That's kind of what it looks like here because Elijah you know, asks Elisha, hey, what do you want from me before I go? And Elisha, he just lays it all out there, this understudy. And he asks for it big time. He says, hey, I want a double portion of your spirit, which, okay, what's going on there? In other words, what Elisha is saying is, hey, if this thing's going to keep going, if, if, if there's going to still continue to be a prophetic influence in the kingdom here, uh, I, I'm not you, Elijah. You've got this big personality, Mount Carmel, you know, you've got your name and lights. I get it, but that's not me. If, if this is going to keep going, I need twice as much of what God's been doing through you to come through me. <laughs> And Elijah knew that that was out of his hands. He's not the one in charge. And so what, is he, what he says, which puts God back in charge of the moment, is he says, listen, if God lets you see me be taken up into heaven, then that's God's answer that you can have a double portion of what he's been doing through me. If God doesn't let you see me, well, you've got your answer that way and God will figure it out another way. And then as they're walking and talking, you know, shooting the breeze, Elijah doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would throw out a joke, but if he did, it would be hilarious because he never did. So I don't know what they were talking about, but they're walking along and then suddenly this chariot and these horses of fire separate the two of them. Elijah kind of hops in and takes off and Elisha's there kind of shouting in a bit of shock as to what's going on as he watches his mentor who is like a father to him be taken up into heaven. And then there's this eerie silence. Do you notice it's not mentioned? Because silence is rarely mentioned in the story. And we don't know how long Elisha sat there. But there's this silence where Elisha is all alone. Elijah is gone. And in a flash, we see the end of an era. And Elisha, he, he kind of sheds his clothes in a ceremonial, grieving kind of way. And he picks up the coat of Elijah and he walks over to the Jordan River and thinks to himself, listen, if, if Elijah said that God let me see him go up into heaven, then I would have a double portion. And if that's true, then this should work. So he takes up the coat of Elijah that had fallen 
And he smacks the water and says, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And the water parts in the same way it did for Elijah. And he walks over on dry ground. And the message is abundantly clear. The, the 50 understudy prophets who are watching, they get it. Elisha gets it. The historian who's, who's retelling these events in 2 Kings, he gets it. Even when, here it is, even when the most charismatic and brilliant leader is taken from the scene. I mean, this is Elijah. I mean, Mount Carmel superstar took down not just one, but two and maybe a little bit more than two kings in the process Elijah. Like had this amazing experience with God on the mountaintop, Elijah. But when Elijah is no longer there, the most important factor to God's work in the world is that God didn't stop being there. Why? Here's our first point. Because, and this is huge, God's mission doesn't end with you. I mean, if it didn't end with Elijah, okay, if it didn't end with him, one of the most important guys in the Old Testament, and one of the most darkest periods of Israel's history, mind you, then no matter how important you may feel in the moment, no matter how important other people might think you are, no matter how dark the situation may look for you or for your loved ones, it won't end with you either. God's mission doesn't end with you when your part on earth comes to an end. And this is reinforced when you look back through this weird itinerary between Elijah and Elisha. I mean, why, why from town to town? Why these towns? Why then the Jordan River scene in the first place? And here's why. Elijah, he's pointing back. He's alluding by his actions to a moment in Israel's history. And the author of Kings, he doesn't want us to miss this. So I want, I want to ask you a question. It's rhetorical. <laughs> but can you tell me, can you tell me who else parted water in Israel's history? Well, you, it's, you, you were very rhetoric, but it was, you know, that was good. Uh, but <clears throat> very rhetorical. That was good. Um, Moses, who also seemed very irreplaceable, who did these amazing things in the life of Israel that seemed as if he were to disappear, the whole mission was going to fall apart, was so associated with God's voice that there was probably a really unhealthy association with him as God. And when he parted the Red Sea... And his time came to an end, interestingly enough, in the same geographical region east of the Jordan River, Mount Nebo. We don't know exactly where, but even the geography is very similar. And when God chose Joshua to follow Moses, what did Joshua do? At the Jordan River, it also parted to signify to the next generation that the most important thing wasn't one of his servants, but his presence, that God won't stop being there, and that his mission doesn't end with one person. You see, God's always giving signs to the next generation that he won't stop being there, even though the people may change, the times may change, the issues may change, God won't stop being there, because God's mission is always bigger than a charismatic leader. No matter who we think we are or how important we are or a colleague is or a ministry leader or a business leader. It doesn't end with us. It's always carried on by him and he won't stop being there. And, and isn't that just encouraging and comforting? 
There's so much to do in this world. This world is so broken that often we can wear the burdens of really good work on our shoulders and we should carry each other's burdens. We should be doing and being weighed down in some degree by the brokenness of the world. But when we miss this, we can be crushed by it. But more than just a neat idea, something that gets you out of bed in the morning, what does that mean for you and for me? I mean, how does that change what you do tomorrow? How does that change the way in which you go about your work, the work that God's called you to? How does that change the way in which you engage family and friends? How does that change the way you go about your schoolwork if you're a student? If God really will keep things moving forward, even after we're gone, is the application then to just sit back and relax? Is it to then be haphazard and disorganized, reckless, And just completely emotive, wherever your heart takes you, you go? Is it to, in the most extreme sense, to just let go and let God? Which is often used as a phrase to say, well, I don't have to do anything. And so our obedience even goes by the wayside? No, that's not what it means. And I think that's a real danger sometimes we can begin to assume. And that's why we either don't talk about this, because we're afraid that people are going to think that, or we don't talk about it because we're afraid of these other implications. So, how does knowing God's mission doesn't stop with you change what you do? When we begin to genuinely believe that God won't stop being there, not just cognitively aware of an idea about it, but are convicted in our gut about this truth. Well, when that happens, I think there are at least three outcomes as to how we go about our various vocations and callings. Wherever God has you, okay? And here they are. First, If you're convicted that God won't stop being there, that his mission doesn't end with you, you will have, first, a newfound ability to work hard but not be restless. You're going to work hard because you've been invited to be be a part of this mission of God's redemptive work in the world and the restoration of all things. You have been invited to play a part. What a joy. And there's great excitement in that. It's an opportunity And so, yes, work hard, blood, sweat, and tears and all that. Like, get up early. Work hard. But when we really grasp this, you can also rest really well. Because you aren't holding it all together. You can take days off and not feel guilty, even if you're, quote-unquote, doing social work. But if I'm not there, so-and-so will. But if I'm not there... And the guilt eats away at you. You can say no to people and significant events. You can say no, period. (laughs) Sometimes that's just hard to do. Because the end of what you will do or can do is not the end of what God is doing. The end of what you will do or can do is not the end of what God is doing in the world. And we already experience this every time we go to sleep at night or fall asleep in a sermon, you know. Um, You expect that when you open your eyes, the world will still be there somehow between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. and 10 minutes on Sunday. Like there's somehow the world will still be hanging together. And the reason that God has designed us in such a way that we need sleep is to remind us of that message every day. The same reason when he actually delivered the nation of Israel from slavery, one of the Ten Commandments was what? 
to work until you're dog tired and then work more. No, like one of the, the Ten Commandments was the Sabbath. Like I know you got a lot of work to do. I know this is an agrarian society and it really depends on whether you're going to eat the next day on whether you're taking care of your crops. But one day out of a week, I don't want you to do any of that. And I'm going to take care of you because you're not in control. It doesn't end with you. It ends with me. We have limits as creatures, and we are creatures way before we are ever Christians. And when we ignore those limits, we're actually mocking our Creator and seeking to live a life that we were not designed to live. So I want you to think about, and this is where it starts to, I think it starts to feel a little bit, but think, think about that friend you told about Jesus and he, and he or she seems like they're right on the cusp of embracing the gospel and then God takes you home. Like you've been having all these conversations and you felt like you were right, right on the cusp. God won't stop being there with your friend. Actually, God loves them more than you love them. And his mission, even with that one person, doesn't end with you. That job training you've been doing with single moms to help them live sustainable lives. If God were to take you home tomorrow, God won't stop being there for them because he loves single moms way more than you do. And listen, if you don't embrace your limits now, you might go home sooner. You start rubbing against the very fabric of the universe, it rubs back, okay? And maybe you're thinking, Gabe, listen, I've got this down. Some of you are like, oh, man, that's me. Others of you are like, dude, I'm fine. I rest well. I work well. Well, maybe, but just to be sure, I want to ask another question. How, this is, this is, I want you to think about this with your day. How much of your day is spent with you being bitter? Bitter. Bitter at the work you yourself are often doing, bitter that you never get a break or at least feel like you, you can't take a break. Sure, they've offered me breaks, but I can't take a break because if I stop, I'm too important. This thing's going to fall apart. And, and then you start getting bitter at other people. More people just need to stand up. I don't know why I'm doing this all by myself. I can never take a break. Bitterness can come from different areas. But guaranteed, if you never learn to live within your limits, bitterness will make its home in your heart at the very work you've been called to do and you can find great delight in doing. God won't stop being there if you rest. So yes, work hard. Work to all of your ability, but, but also rest well. God isn't calling you to a life of restlessness. He's calling you to a life of faithfulness. The second outcome of knowing God's mission, it, that, it, that it doesn't end with you, is that you have this unshakable courage to try when you might fail. Failure doesn't have the last word God does, and then that means, it doesn't mean that you don't plan well, it doesn't mean that you don't pray often, okay? But it means that there are times when failure is possible, and you're called to step out in courage and try. For example, just because you tried to fight off an unjust measure and legislature. And you tried to get out the vote and it still didn't pass. That doesn't mean God has stopped being there. Whatever your work project is, if it meets in failure, that doesn't mean that God has stopped 
being there. God's mission doesn't end with you. And far too often in the midst of failure, we see that God's plans are much bigger than we would have realized. And I want to get at this just a little bit. I want to ask you another question. Ask this to yourself. When was the last time you tried something risky? Not stupid. Okay, there is a line. Um, and not blind faith, but you did research. You sought to be thoughtful. You brought around yourself wise counsel. And yet the step forward didn't have a guaranteed success on the other end. And it took courage to try. When was the last time you tried something a little risky like that? Whether it was starting a new friendship. Giving the church another try. Because that feels risky. Giving a community a try. Starting an entrepreneurial venture in the city that God's laid on your heart. How did it go? If, if, that's, if that has happened, how did it go? Because listen, if you're never taking a chance, then chances are really good you think you have to control your world. And you really feel like that the end of God's mission will end with you. If you never have the courage to try when you have the chance to fail. Because listen, God is working even in your failures. And that should give us the courage to try. The third outcome of being convicted that God won't stop being there is that you have an interest in others for others you haven't met. An interest in others for others you haven't met. And because, listen, we can have interest in others for a lot of selfish things. You can be interested in someone who will then, you do them a favor, they'll do you a favor, and you move up the corporate ladder. You can do someone a favor, and suddenly you're expecting your comeuppance, you know, you're expecting your, your, your return on that favor at a later date. You're keeping that in your back pocket. There are a lot of reasons we can be interested in others. But to be interested in others, for others you may never even meet, that is anchored in a theological understanding that God won't stop being there for His purposes in the world. It's a different orientation to the way in, in which you engage other people. See, understanding that God isn't just with me and he won't just not forsake me and he won't just not forsake us, but he won't forsake those after us. Elijah got this, I think, finally by the end of his life. It took him a while. Remember in 1 Kings 19, he's like, I'm done. I'm alone. There's no one else doing this. Take me now. God's like, no, 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 no. I got some more work to do for you. You know, it's going to involve some chariots. I think you're going to really like it. It's pretty neat. Um, <clears throat> But Elijah, you notice in our story at each one of these towns, who is he meeting with? These sons of prophets, which is the, are these guilds of up-and-coming prophets who are learning what it means to be a prophet. He's investing in the next generation of prophets. Sure, Elisha is like the primo understudy, to be clear, but he's investing in a lot of other young prophets who will be there after him. It's not just about Elijah doing his own thing anymore. He's invested, finally, in learning to be interested in others even others who will serve others he won't ever meet, this side of heaven. And if God's mission is bigger than you, I think this frees you to empower other people, to work with other people, to delegate to other people, to let other people delegate to you. I mean, it, it embodies a whole new form of teamwork and next generational internships and leadership uh, formation. So I want to ask you this question. I think this can get at the heart on whether we're doing this or not, or whether we believe this. If you were to die tomorrow, would your work continue on through others? Have you been investing in others, inviting 
others in, empowering others to join you. And maybe, maybe you've been trying to start something new for a long time, and then you realized, you know what, there's this other organization, this other business that's doing it a lot better. You know what, I'm going to join them because I'm thinking about others who are going to invest in others that I haven't even met. Are you investing in others? If not, there's chances are really good you have a pretty high importance on yourself. And you think that God's mission is going to end with you. So we see these three things, hard work without restlessness, courage in the face of failure, and an interest in others for others. And ask yourself, do you see these in yourself? Not so that you can now model these behaviors, but what they're revealing is actually a theological misunderstanding, that you're not deeply convicted that God actually will be there after you. It's not action first, belief second, but understanding the way in which God works in the world down in your gut will transform, and these will be some of the outcomes that shape the way you do everyday life. Because your part in this world is going to come to an end. My part's going to come to an end. I mean, even for Elijah, his part came to an end. And the greatest comfort doesn't come in life because of a ministry leader or, you know, a business leader or a powerful personality. The greatest comfort comes in knowing that God won't stop being there no matter what. One who has neither the beginning nor end. And someone that Elijah had an inkling, he didn't know how it all would work out, but knew that a better Elijah would come. One who promises to end our weight, end our pain, end our sin, end racism and injustice, who will ultimately even end our end and end death itself. And as great as Elijah was, he wasn't good enough to stand in the gap fully for Israel. Neither would Elisha be as you follow his story. Neither would Isaiah or Jeremiah or John the Baptist fill in the blank. But there's only one who can stand in the gap between death and life and offer us a way through. The one who took our sins, Jesus Christ, the God-man, and came out of the grave to make us whole. And because of Jesus, it's okay that our end is coming because we know that it isn't our ultimate end. And we can trust that our work today will outlast us. And we can even spend our lives on things bigger than us because they'll go further than us. And knowing ultimately, even in our brokenness, God will make all things right. He loves the world way more than you do, way more than I do. And he won't abandon her. Dana Halstead believed that. Um, Most of you have no idea who I'm talking about, and that's okay. Most of us will be forgotten too. Um, Oh, uh, so uh, his funeral funeral today will be at at the Olathe campus at 2 p.m., And even though I'm sure he had no idea what it might look like, Dana trusted that God's work would outlast him. Dana was a pastor, and and actually throughout his life, Dana had planted four churches in the Kansas City area. After he and his wife retired, they attended at our Olathe campus and actually were sent out from there to help start our Shawnee Mission campus. But the last church that Dana started as a pastor was an Olathe Heritage Community Church. It was a country church that when the suburbs showed up, it didn't know what to do um, and began to dwindle to less than 10 people. It was not what, you know, as you wrestle through what does it look like to do this well, it wasn't what they felt like was a success. 
And I can't imagine how hard it would be to start a church, give everything you can to make it work. I mean everything. He planted the church and he literally built the sucker with his own hands. And then to watch it close its doors. But God wasn't done. <laughs> the church is now our Olathe campus. One part of the building, that first part in the initial 10 acres, we didn't build that. We had no right to it. But in 2006, Dana and the remainder of the church there gave it to Christ Community. And we've been the recipients, really, I mean, at each campus across the way, because the moment that Dana and that church, Heritage, gave us that building, it launched us into a whole new conversation. At that point, we were like, what does it look like just to be faithful here in Leewood? And then we got this building, and we're like, oh, should we plant a church in Olathe? You know, or should that, like, what should that look like? And then it started the multi-site conversation. And out of that then came the conversations for downtown and Brookside and Shawnee Mission. Really, that work was the catalyst to the where Christ community is today. And if Christ community has meant anything to you at all, we owe a huge debt of gratitude to this guy. You'll probably, honestly, you'll probably forget about who nevertheless believed God's work could outlast him. Against all odds, even when it felt like it was over. I mean, just look at what God's done here downtown, out of that. It was the catalyst for this. I praise God for Dana Halstead and many like him who've gone before us, whether it be pastors or whether it be teachers or business leaders or artists or stay-at-home parents or social workers. Praise God for those who've gone before us, who gave it their all, who could rest well, had the courage to try risky things, but at the same time, we had an interest in others for others for, for, that would invest in other people that they would never meet. Praise God for them. And then the question remains at the end of all of this, who will praise God for us? Who will praise God for you, for me? May it bring him glory. Let's pray. God, I am way too wrapped up in myself, um, and I ask for your forgiveness. And we as a people get so easily wrapped up in ourselves. Forgive us. You are, are the one who is shaping history. Your mission outlasts us. It has been before us, and it will continue after us. Thank you that we get to play a part. Thank you that you've invited us. So God, may we work hard and rest well. God, may we have the courage to try and to do so thoughtfully, even when failure is an option. God, may we be the kinds of people who have an interest in others for others that we will never meet. All driven by a deep conviction of your enduring work in the world because you love the world more than we do. Continue to shape our affections to line up with yours. Continue to make us convicted about your enduring presence. And may the world look on at the work of your people and give glory to our good Father up in heaven. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.